This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, our card for this week is Charlie Kerfeld, pitcher for the Houston Astros, number 608. Okay, Charlie Kerfeld, our first Astro. Before we get started, David, you had something you wanted to share. Yeah, Matt, I wanted to acknowledge somebody who was an important podcaster to me and I and to you and, and somebody I, I think important in the in the soccer community. Matt, you and I both soccer fans and both, I think, initially connected as friends over our mutual love of soccer and podcasts. Daryl Grove, who was the co-host of the Total Soccer Show, an American soccer podcast, recently passed away. I just, I thought it was important to acknowledge Daryl's positivity in the face of an extensive battle with cancer and, and just publicly say how important it was to me over this last uh, over this last year the positivity that Daryl had in in talking about soccer and his enthusiasm and general cheeriness in the face of what must have been a daunting battle and you know also to just say that sometimes I think we have these voices in our head from from listening to podcasts and it's just a, a person talking at us but uh daryl grove just generally felt like a friend and his his passing it was uh really devastating news for me to hear thank you daryl for everything that you added to the podcasting community total soccer show is an athletic podcast and well worth a listen if you are at all interested in soccer but daryl's passing is very sad to hear thanks david and I felt the same way. Now, with the way that our media is, with podcasts, TikTok, YouTube, where everyone is a performer, it's easy to see the people that we watch on screens or listen to in our headphones and to think of them as someone who's there to entertain us rather than human beings. Having listened to the Total Soccer Show for many years, you could tell there were things that came through with the way that Daryl was as a human that made it more than just entertainment. And so I'm thinking about him and his family and about Taylor Rockwell throughout these last couple of weeks. So thank you for bringing that up. So to get back to our show, we'll say hello and welcome back to 1988 Tops. So now let's go to Charlie Kerfeld. And if there's anybody out of this set who says Houston, Texas to me, it's the front of this card of Charlie Kerfeld. I know he's not from Texas, but man, that look that the windbreaker over top of the jersey, the old Houston Astros hat with that star and the H, oh, it's so good. The Astros even in orange. This card just, his mouth is, mouth is full of what's got to be chewing tobacco and a lot of it. So I just, this card is beautiful. So I'm really, really glad we're starting with it for the Astros. Yeah, I'll add into that giant glasses that were sometimes transitions lenses. <laughs> a, a mullet maybe inspired by some punk rock. I don't yes. know, Charlie's, there's a lot to like about Charlie. In looking into Charlie's whole deal, 
he was quite a colorful character, and it doesn't take a lot of research to to find some great Charlie Kerfeld stories. What I love, too, about this picture is that he's he's 24 years old in this picture. He could easily pass for 54. He could easily pass for a baby-faced 54-year-old. Yes, Charlie Kerfeld of the Astros. Because we have not talked about the Astros, we haven't had a chance to talk about this song, Go Go Astros. Let's fire that up. Okay, we just fired it up. Matt, this is one of those badly shoehorned baseball word songs. Yeah, there's some elements I can appreciate. I kind of dig the guitar, but the lyrics are just not doing it for me. I think that this could only have worked in Houston, Texas. (laughs) Uh, They're breathing orange fire. Yes. Here come the Astros burning with desire is it's a weird way to start yeah that is not what i associate with baseball stealing around the bases driving in the runs that those are baseball things That's, those are baseball baseball terms so matt this song was written by mac hayes in 1979 he had written songs about the houston oilers you know he also wrote vamos vamos astros they recorded this oh, song yeah. in spanish this song was played in the astrodome from 1980 until 1987 the popularity of this song lasted about as long as Charlie Kerfeld's career in 1987. <laughs> By the time Charlie was on this card, he was kind of on his way out. But yeah, I think we'll talk a little bit about Charlie's background, Charlie's meteoric or m- maybe uh, rocket-fueled rise in the major leagues, and then his subsequent fading but then his resurgence as a scout and and manager of minor league teams. Fantastic. We'll also get Brian in on the RBI corner since Charlie Kerfeld makes an appearance in that game too. So fantastic. We got a lot a lot going on for this show. So now let's flip to the back. And again, Charlie Kerfeld number 608, right-handed thrower. He's a uh, hometown of Knob Noster, Missouri. A height and weight of 6'6", 235 pounds, which that would make him one of the tallest cards in the 1988 Tops podcast so far. I think, you know, guys like uh, Randy Johnson at 6'10", later on some taller players, but I think he's definitely the tallest player that we've covered thus far. And that 235 is, uh, that's a generous 235 for Charlie, having watched some videos. So, and then the hometown, so back to Knob Noster, Missouri, or Knob Noster, Missouri. I, David, do you have any idea on pronunciation for this here? I don't have, I, I think it's Knob Noster. Uh, I, I did look into a little bit of history of this town, of course. It is near an Air Force base, and Charlie was born on that Air Force base. His father was in the Air Force for many years. Charlie was born on that Air Force base. And the history of Knob Noster, Knob means hills, and Noster, the Latin form of our, so our hills. And I don't speak Latin. Oh, uh, I do. Eke, eke in pictura est puella nomine Flavia. Well, Wichita schools that... teach <laughs> Latin. Yes, yes. The one I went to did. It's similar to, in the Italian, the uh, Cosa Nostra. 
if there was a mafia in central Missouri, this is that's what you would probably call it is Knobnoster. Knobnoster, Missouri. He moved when he was nine to Carson City, Nevada. In Carson City, was drafted out right out of high school, but he didn't sign. And he said that he was offered initially $8,000 as a signing bonus. Then that went up to $35,000. Then that went up to $50,000. But he turned it down because he had a girlfriend, a long-term girlfriend that he didn't want to leave in Carson City. And so instead, he went to junior college. Seems like a smart seems like a smart choice for a young lad. Yeah, he was drafted initially by the Phillies. Instead, he went to Yavapai College in Arizona, and I did not had never heard of this college, but it has a pretty good junior college baseball program. They've won four national titles and a surprising number of draft picks from this junior college. Guys like Kurt Schilling, Billy Hatcher, and Alan Gordon. Matt, we were recently oh. talking about Alan Gordon. <laughs> Alan Gordon, f- f- a famous Major League Soccer player. Yes, he went to Yavapai Junior College as well. Charlie Kerfeld played there and at 19 years old was drafted again. This time in the first round, his number five pick in the draft in 1982 by the Houston Astros. Continuing down on the back of this card, we see him rise through the minor leagues. He starts in 1983 at the Asheville Tourists. And there's the fun fact that he was the South Atlantic League Pitcher of the Year in 1983. 28 games, 192 innings pitched, and a 2.91 ERA, 16-10 and 10 record. 189 strikeouts and 192 innings pitched. That is fantastic. So good job, Charlie. Yep, and he was 20 years old when he got bumped up to double-A. He also had 12 complete games in 1983. This was a 19-year-old guy, and they had him throwing 192 innings and 12 complete games. That's a recipe for just really burning somebody (laughs) out. But, yeah, he moves up to double-A and continues to have success uh, in 1984 in Columbus. So he's doing really well there. Gets moved up to Tucson in 1985. ERA isn't as good. He plays 26 games, 123 strikeouts, and 163 innings. So still very effective. He pitched well enough in 1985 in Tucson to get called up to the majors. And so he was the 10th youngest player in the National League, 21 years old. He started in six games and went 4-2 and with a 4.06 ERA with the Astros. So getting into 1986, he is coming out of the bullpen for the Astros And he has an excellent season on what is a very excellent team. Yes, this 1986 Astros team had multiple all-stars. Of course, they had pitchers Nolan Ryan and Mike Scott, but they also had an all-star closer in Dave Smith. And Charlie was Dave Smith's setup man. This team also had a decent offense with Kevin Bass and Glenn Davis, both making the all-star game in 1986. They ended up going 96 and 66. And Charlie was a really big part of that. You know, he's he's in 93 and two-thirds innings. He's got 77 strikeouts and ends up with an 11-2 and record as the setup man. So that is very impressive for the young pitcher. What's even more impressive to me, David, is this quote that you found about Charlie and his personal grooming habits and his, let's say, his approach to intimidating the other team. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's intimidating or the opposite thereof. He said that he <laughs> would chew tobacco and see how dirty he could get his uniform and spit all over himself. And then when <laughs> when he came into the game, the batters would think, look at that hog with spit all over him. He can't get anybody out. And that's what Charlie wanted them to think. And then his six six imposing frame would end up getting those batters out. This kind of goes with the territory of Charlie. He had some antics, let's say, and was quite a character. I read somewhere that he set his hat on fire after losing a game. Um, <laughs> he had I love a, it. I love it. <laughs> he had a collection of t-shirts that he would wear under his uniform. That list included the Jetsons, Flintstones, Twisted Sister, ACDC, The Go-Go's, Devo, and Twisted Brother. What? <laughs> Twisted Brother? Uh, Twisted Brother <laughs> was his own band with his friends from Carson City, but he did not play an instrument. He played lead air guitar. As you said, Matt, he was also really good. He was fourth in National League Rookie of the Year voting. He had a 1.206 whip in 93 innings. The Astros in 86 clinched the National League West in a very impressive fashion. In the last three games before clinching, the Astros had incredibly impressive starting pitching by Jim Deshays, Nolan Ryan, and Mike Scott, culminating with a no-hitter that Mike Scott threw to clinch the division uh, with a 2-0 win. The losing pitcher in that game was Juan Berenguer. Mm. Sorry, Juan. But it led to this video that we'll post in the show notes of Charlie celebrating on the field and soaked in bush beer, throwing some open beers into the stands, <laughs> and at one point dumping beer on Nolan Ryan. And as we know from 1988 Tops history, Nolan Ryan does not suffer fools lightly. Charlie comes up behind him, dumps a beer on him, and Nolan Ryan has just this look. Just oh. an angry dad look. And sprays Charlie with champagne in a way that is not fun. Does not look like he's having fun. <laughs> Nolan Ryan means business. That is right. That is right. Even, even in celebration, yeah, Nolan Ryan is not someone you want to mess with. What happens in this series against the Mets? Charlie ended up pitching in three games against the Mets. In game two and three, he came in for an inning in each game and didn't give up any runs, but Houston lost both of those games. There's some good video in game three. He had these you know, transitions lenses and this giant wad of chewing tobacco in his cheek, and he made a really amazing play. He makes this very agile or lucky grab <laughs> behind his back on a Gary Carter line drive up the middle. The ball comes straight back at him, and as he's turning, his glove hand goes behind him, and he grabs the ball. It goes to run toward first base to throw to the first baseman to get Carter out, but he also shows Carter the ball and kind of points at him. And this rubbed a lot of folks the wrong way, including Dwight Gooden. And, you know, Gary Carter, one of the, like, the nice guys of Major League Baseball, and one of the nice guys and Bible reading guys on this team full of 1986 New York Mets. You have Charlie, this 
giant hulking figure kind of taunting Gary Carter, and it just did not go over well with the Mets. Doc Gooden said, I don't think Charlie should have done that. A thing like that can come back and haunt you. Carter even said, you read and hear things about the crazy life of Charlie Kerfeld. Maybe it was innocent. He caught the ball behind his back and maybe it surprised him. But there are certain things you've got to be careful of doing to an opposing player and pointing fingers is one of them. So with that setup from game three, Charlie comes in in the 10th inning of game five with the series tied 2-2. Charlie comes into a 1-1 game. By the time the 12th inning rolls around, Wally Backman gets on base, gets to second base, and Gary Carter comes to the plate. Maybe has a little bit of a grudge, but he again hits the ball straight up the middle off Charlie, drives in the winning run of that game five, and Charlie ends up taking the loss. The Mets would go on and win game six and go on to the World Series. Well, sweet revenge for Gary Carter and a uh, bitter taste for Charlie Kerfeld. But apparently he uh, got the bitter taste out of his mouth in the offseason because in 1987, he comes into spring training weighing 270 pounds. Now, I'm not I'm not fat shaming, David. It is. But it's just it's not usual for athletes to come into spring training, you know, up 30 pounds. Well, we saw oil can Boyd down 30 pounds. Yeah, it's true. We've we have we've had some pretty extreme weight swings here on the 1988 Tops podcast. So 1987, he comes into spring training a little bit out of shape and then immediately gets in a contract dispute. Yeah, and this leads to one of the better Charlie Kerfeld stories. Charlie wanted a raise. Of course, the 1986 Astros, they make it to the playoffs. Charlie's, you know, gets some Rookie of the Year votes, has a really great season. He was making $65,000 a year. And he asked for a raise to $150,000 a year. He then dropped his request to one hundred and thirty. dollars At some point in this negotiation, the Astros get down to $110,500. Charlie said, you know what? He saw that his teammate, Jim Deshays, had signed a contract for $110,000. Charlie's jersey number was 37. So he said, just kick in the extra money to make it $110,037.37. That's normal. And then he also asked for 37 boxes of orange jello. That's not normal. Matt, have you ever included <laughs> food in Wait. your contract negotiations? I, I not that I can recall. He asked for the jello so that he and Larry Anderson could pull a prank on some coach or unsuspecting reporter. When they least expect it, they might find some jello in their toilet or whirlpool or something. He chose orange because it was the they weren't going to be wearing orange uniforms anymore. And so he wanted orange okay. jello. This is quite a plan. I think it's great. I think it's a great plan. I, I don't see how this could go wrong. Yeah, I, I don't know if he ever went through with this threat, but Coming out of that contract negotiation, he said, I just want to play baseball, help the Astros win a World Series, and I'll make up the extra money in endorsements. I don't know what kind of endorsements, Charlie. Oh, yeah. You might have come up with I can I could... think of a ton. I can think of a ton. So, Matt, after signing this contract, Charlie said he felt that the younger guys on the club got left at the North Pole without their shorts on. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting choice of words, Charlie. Older pitchers were making over a million dollars a year. 
the closer for this team, Dave Smith, was making six hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year in nineteen eighty six. So he was making ten times what Charlie was making as the setup man. I think Charlie had a bit of a point. Yes. Nolan Ryan was making over a million dollars a year. Mike Scott was making over a million dollars a year. And they were nickeling and diming Charlie over some jello thirty seven mm. cents. Mm. I think Charlie had a point. Going into that spring training, Charlie was overweight, 35 pounds heavier than he had been the season before. He started the 87 season with the Astros team that had some pretty high expectations after 86. They still had great pitching, of course, still Nolan Ryan and Mike Scott. But this season, the hitting maybe just was not there as it was in 86. But also, Charlie started out bad. He started 0-2 with a 9.24 ERA. And he said that there was something wrong with his delivery, but he needed more time pitching to figure out what it was. So in, in late April, he was sent to Tucson, a AAA. At this point, he's 23 years old, and he had never really been through a slump before in his career. And he was um, kind of in just a, a bad funk. And this led to some arguments with AAA management, in one case, he kind of underhand threw a ball at the coach as he was being pulled oh, from a game. No. Yeah, that's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, that's and he idea. was fined $250 for that. He went through a lot of ups and downs in AAA in 87, but he was able to kind of turn it around enough to get called back up to the Astros in July. That leads us to an incident in July of 1987. I've said this now multiple times in this. This is my favorite part. My favorite story about Charlie Kerfeld is that a, a game with the New York Mets, he was found doing something in the bullpen that got him fined. Yeah, he was eating ribs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if those were like stadium ribs. There's no way. They don't have ribs <laughs> in the stadium. There's no way. Not a chance. Where did Charlie find those ribs in Queens? I bet for sure he could have gotten ribs. Absolutely. Sounds delicious. He was fined 250 bucks for this incident. I, I was looking for video of this or something. It's, it's unfortunate I couldn't find video of Charlie mm. eating ribs. Looks like a man who could eat a, eat a rack of ribs. No problem. Yes. He, shortly after this, went onto the disabled list for two months with calcium deposits in his elbow. Surprised it's not gout, but he ended up coming back in September for three games and gave up a couple runs in five innings. So he was doing better than he had been earlier in the season when his ERA was over nine. But overall, 1987 was a bad season for Charlie. As we see on the back of this card, he had a 6.67 ERA for the season and went 0-2 in 21 games. Opponents also hit 309 against him and had an OPS of 903. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Charlie suggested that in place of the stats for this season, they should put in military service on his card. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. So 1987 was not a great year for Charlie, but based on making the playoffs in 1986, he did qualify to be put in RBI baseball along with the Houston Astros. And so we'll go now to Brian, our correspondent in the RBI corner. And we 
back in the RBI baseball corner with our correspondent, Brian. Brian, welcome back. And, you know, this week we're talking about Charlie Kerfeld. Uh, so tell us about the Houston Astros in RBI baseball. So the Houston Astros are probably the weakest team in RBI baseball. Out of the 10 teams, eight of the teams are really power and slugging teams, while two of the teams rely on manufacturing runs and good pitching. And those two teams are St. Louis and Houston. And Houston is probably like the poor man's St. Louis. They don't have as much power, maybe not as much speed. St. Louis has Jack Clark in the middle of their lineup and Vince Coleman at the top of their lineup. Houston doesn't quite have players like that. So in order to win with Houston, you have to manufacture runs and you have to rely on good pitching. Uh, their pitching staff is all righties. Charlie Kerfeld is one of the relievers. They also have Nolan Ryan and Mike Scott as starters and Dave Smith as the other reliever. Probably considered the weakest team in the game, but they do have very colorful uniforms. So if you're playing for that reason, they're a great team to use. <laughs> well, we love uniforms here, so that makes a lot of sense. How about Charlie Kerfeld himself as a pitcher? So Charlie Kerfeld is a really interesting pitcher in RBI baseball in that there are 40 pitchers in the game, four per team across the 10 teams, and he is only one of four side armors in the game. The others being Brett Saberhagen, Jesse Roscoe, and Steve Bedrosian, and he's the only righty side armor. Now, this is kind of unusual with RBI baseball because there aren't a lot of other player-specific attributes in the game. So unlike a game like Baseball Stars, which is from the same era, uh, all the players in RBI baseball have the same batting stance. They all have the same appearance. They don't have height-weight differences. There aren't defensive attributes by player. But there is this one quirk in the game where four of the pitchers throw a sidearm, but the remaining 36 actually all throw with a normal style. The sidearmers are generally harder to hit. What's interesting about this is that Charlie Kerfeld in real life wasn't a side armor. So it's not quite clear why he was made a side armor as part of this game. One theory is because Houston has a pretty weak team overall and side armors are harder to hit. Perhaps they did it to resource and competitive balance. So Houston would be harder to play by having a better pitching staff. Charlie Kerfeld's pretty good, though. He's not a bad pitcher. He's definitely better than some of the other players that we've covered. Is there any chance they made him sidearm just because he's extra wide? It could be. He has the best endurance of any reliever in the game, which is interesting because from his build, you wouldn't expect him to be a, a man of endurance. It's only marginally better than some of the other pitchers, and the Houston starters have pretty good endurance across the board. He also has the fourth slowest fastball in the game, pretty good curve to his left, so he has some attributes that make him harder to hit because when you can move the ball in and out and you're coming from that odd sidearm angle, that does make it a little bit more difficult to hit, especially playing against a human player. You can fool them a lot more easily. So how good is he? Is he good enough that you could start with him instead? There are definitely people who will start Charlie Kerfeld as opposed to either Nolan Ryan or Mike Scott, one of the traditional starters. Now, relievers can be used as starters. They just happen to have less endurance. And the nice thing about a reliever is if you're playing in a multiple game series and you start one of your relievers, you'll still have them ready to play the next game. Charlie Kerfeld definitely is someone you could start and you could probably get a few innings out of. He's also a good option in relief. He can face both righties and lefties. He's a really useful player. You know, it was interesting doing some research for this, that there are people online who believe that Charlie Kerfeld is one of the best players in RBI baseball. There was one online ranking of RBI baseball players revisiting the 10 best players in the original Nintendo game RBI baseball from the big lead, and they had Charlie Kerfeld as the number 10 player overall in all of RBI baseball. I don't know that I would agree with that necessarily, but it shows you that he has a bit of a cult following in the game. Just like he does in real life.
it is disappointing that they didn't add the transition lenses that he has <laughs> in, in some of these videos that I've watched. But he is definitely RBI baseball player shaped in some of these videos. <laughs> Brian, before you go, as well as being the RBI baseball correspondent, you are also the official 1988 Tops pro wrestling correspondent. And I had a pro wrestling related Charlie Kerfeld question. In an interview, Charlie was asked what he would do if he had one week to live. He said, I'd get Hulk Hogan, Brian Bosworth, Charles Barkley, and I'd have a four-man tag team match with the Four Horsemen. <laughs> I initially read this as being a battle of biblical proportions <laughs> with the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. <laughs> but then I, I looked this up and because I thought, well, Charlie Kerfeld is not probably talking about the Bible here. Uh, is there something wrestling related in this question or in, in, in Charlie's answer? Yes, the, the Four Horsemen were a stable or faction that really gained prominence in Jim, Jim Crockett promotions in the 1980s. So that's probably right in the heart of the Charlie Kerfeld era. Ric Flair was always the, the flagship for the Four Horsemen. And then you had Arn Anderson, the Enforcer, Tully Blanchard. And the fourth would rotate, I believe it began with Ole Anderson, and then later was Barry Windham and would change throughout the years. But at one point, Steve McMichael was actually the, the former defensive tackle of the Bears, was one of the members of the Four Horsemen. So you do have this overlap between professional athletes and the Four Horsemen that goes even beyond Charlie Kerfeld's quotes. Charles Barkley is no slouch, and Kerfeld, we know, uh, is a pretty big guy. But I'm pretty sure he was not referring to an actual biblical battle, although pro wrestling is often laced with hyperbole, where I'm sure the match would be described in those terms in promoting it. No doubt about it. Well, Brian, thank you. Along with Sword, Famine, Wild Beast, and Plague, you are our favorite horseman, so thank you very much. We're going into 1988, and, you know, Charlie, is he's been through a lot, and he's only 24 years old, David. Yes, and so he returns to spring training, and... His form had kind of returned, and he had trimmed down. He had gotten his control back. The only problem was that the Astros had more than enough pitchers on guaranteed contracts, and Charlie wasn't one of them. So he was actually mm. sent not even to AAA this time. He was sent to AA, and he went 2-7 and seven with a 4.5 ERA in AA. Yikes. Yeah. He had shoulder surgery that year, and true to form for Charlie, he was— asked about his career options and had a pretty good response. He had maybe five options here. He said arena football is first, then the World Wrestling Federation, maybe yes. go back to college and get a brain surgery degree, or become an assistant clubhouse man, yep. or go to Harry Wendelstead's umpiring school. <laughs> Harry Wendelstead, a f famous longtime umpire in the National League. Yeah, those sound like great options. Instead, it looks like in 1989, after the so shoulder surgery, he comes back and makes it to AAA ball again. And then finally, back to the majors in 1990. Yes, he made the opening day roster for the Astros. So still in the Astros' thoughts, they still wanted to keep him around for a bit. But he went 0-2 with a 16.2 ERA in five games and then was traded to the Braves. So he goes to the Braves. He pitches 30 innings. He's released at the end of the season. 
he tries his luck with Detroit, goes double A for some of the 1991 season, and then retires at age 27, having had three shoulder surgeries and four knee operations. That is an incredible amount of surgery before age 30. It does kind of go back to that. You look at that first season and you look at those minor league stats and the number of innings that they had a 19-year-old guy who maybe wasn't taking the best care of himself. He just got worn out and by the age of 27 kind of flamed out of the majors. But I was really surprised at Charlie's career after this. Sometimes on this show, we see some sad stories where the post-playing career just kind of fizzles out. And with Charlie, from reading his interviews, he's very active and his brain is active. Some guys are just not interesting in their interviews, but Charlie was uh, creative and, uh, and weird in a great way. And so I was really happy to see that Charlie was very successful as a coach. In 1994, he started coaching some independent league teams and was pretty successful. He coached from 1994 until 2002, and the last team he coached for was the Chico Heat. He won three straight division titles with the Chico Heat from 2000 to 2002, including the Western League title in 2002. So they won in the finals, and unfortunately that league folded. After that, Charlie was signed on as a scout, first with the Mariners, then with a couple of other teams, but ended up with the Phillies in 2006. So initially drafted by the Phillies in 1981, he made his way there 25 years later in 2006, and he served as a scout for the Phillies since 2006. Notably, he scouted Pedro Martinez when hmm. Pedro was brought back out of retirement to pitch for the Phillies at the end of his career. And Pedro ended up going, I think, 5-1 and one and helping the Phillies in the playoffs. So Charlie has had a very successful post-playing career. Maybe not something that when you're watching this video of this bush beer swilling 23-year-old guy, you would think that's a guy with a baseball brain that we need to bring in to, to help our front office. Charlie also was given a Lifetime Achievement Award for scouting, the George Genovese Lifetime Achievement Award in Scouting by the Professional Baseball Scouts Foundation in January of 2020. So just this year, recognized for his efforts, you know, reading some interviews with him, he still goes and talks to young players and still kind of says like, yeah, I'm maybe messed up in my career and maybe partied too much. I, I think he can still recognize talent when he sees it. So let's close the book. Let's close the book on Charlie Kerfeld, David. I was trying to figure out if Charlie Kerfeld could be a thing today. And Charlie was big and a big character. And I think that today there might be more restraint put on his individuality. You know, maybe he could have like a Twitter account where he talks about heavy metal music or something. Or maybe he'd still be into the Jetsons and the Flintstones. Or maybe some coaches would have sanitized him as a prospect or maybe he would have just been like washed out of the system because he's clearly like a giant guy with physical attributes that are 
useful in baseball. But maybe stifling his creativity might have hindered his baseball skills. Charlie also reminded me of a, a tweet that I recently saw during the baseball playoffs. Aaron Gloria Ryan said, she doesn't often watch baseball because who has the time, but she enjoys the fact that you can be built like a garden gnome, a Buddha statue, a member of a JV high school cross-country team, or a full-fledged bridge ogre and still be very good at it. <laughs> And I think that so true. that statement is totally what makes baseball fun still. Charlie was big, but man, if you watch some of these videos, he could throw the ball. He wasn't afraid of anybody. Just finishing up watching the World Series, you watch Mookie Betts, who's five foot nine and was robbing home runs. And this kind of dynamic that anybody of any size can be good and can be a a player on a baseball team is kind of what makes me love baseball. As far as Charlie's personality, he's a fun-loving weirdo, but not in a malicious <laughs> way. And I, I don't know. I love that. I, I wonder how Charlie Kerfeld would scout Charlie Kerfeld. <laughs> that is an amazing question. So we'll put it to the listeners out there. How would Charlie Kerfeld scout Charlie Kerfeld? It's a paradox it's a riddle stuffed in your cheek, wrapped in a rack of baby back ribs. <laughs> Encased in jello. If you are a fun loving oddball, we would love to hear from you. Find us on Twitter. We're on Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>